I went to eat. And I dressed like I was ready to eat and forgot I was going to work. So I left my tie and my coat. But it was appropriate. Because tonight we're going to shuck some corn when it comes to God's Word. And we're going to get after it. So I hope you're ready. I hope you have your Bibles open. I want you to think about the very beginning of your New Testament. I want you to think about the book of Matthew. You see Jesus being preceded by a man named John. And John, we're introduced to him in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 1. It says, and in those days, John the Baptist came, John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he was preaching, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's his sermon? Repent, because the kingdoms are coming. Now, to a Jew, in the first century, they knew there was a kingdom coming. They knew that ahead of them lied an opportunity to be a part of that kingdom. It had been prophesied for years. It had been being foretold for years that there was a kingdom coming. The prophets, all of them, prophesied of it. Matter of fact, what we're going to do tonight is we're going to go way back in the Bible. We're going to talk about this kingdom in prophecy. You can go all the way back and you can find in, in uh, excuse me, 1 Samuel chapter 7. You're going to see there that, that David is going to be told by Samuel of this kingdom. And he would tell him in 1 Samuel chapter 7 verse 12. He says, when the days be fulfilled, and when you shall sleep with your fathers, I will set up your seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. From his bowels, he says, I'm going to establish his kingdom. He should build a house for my name, and shall establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He should be my son. If he can commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the stripes of children of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before thee. And so he tells him that there is coming a day in which he is going to establish a kingdom from the loins of David. And that his kingdom is going to be a place. Ago, Kendall, if you're going to have a king, you've got to have a kingdom. You've got to have citizens of the kingdom. Well, if you're going to be a king, you've got to have a throne. And so he tells him, David, it's going to be on your throne that he's going to sit. Isaiah would prophesy similar in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, that the Messiah would sit on the throne of the kingdom. He would say, therefore, unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. The government shall be in upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of his increase and in government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it. And notice now what kind of throne it's going to be, throne being symbolic of a place and seat of power and authority. How is he going to rule his kingdom? It says the one that's going to come from the throne of David, the one that's going to sit on this throne in the kingdom is going to order it and establish it, listen, with judgment, and justice. And listen for how long now, forever. Brazil, the Lord, will perform this, he says. Daniel would prophesy similar in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 44. He would tell us that the kingdom would come in the days of the Roman Empire and that it would stand forever. And he would say there in the days of these kings, talking about the Roman Empire, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. 
and the kingdom shall be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these people or all, all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Have you ever known a kingdom to stand forever? There's only one. John the Baptist preached the same kingdom. Jesus preached the same kingdom. John preaching it, Matthew chapter 3. Jesus begins preaching it after he has been baptized, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. First thing you see from Jesus, it says, from that time Jesus began to preach. Now, mind you, he just went through his um, temptation in the wilderness. What's the first thing he does? He starts preaching, repent ye, saying, he has no different message than John the Baptist. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the Bible prophesies that there's going to be a king, there's going to be a kingdom, it's going to be from the loins of David, it's going to be a kingdom that's ruled with justice and judgment and power and might. It's going to be a kingdom that has no end. The Bible prophesies even where that kingdom would come. Think about Isaiah chapter 2, it tells us when, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2 and 3, says it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house will be established. Where? In the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above all the hills. And notice now, all nations are going to flow into Who's going to be the citizens of this kingdom? All nations. This isn't just going to be for the Jews anymore. This is going to be for every nation. And he says, and many people shall go and come and say, come and ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways. We will walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So we know when, last days. We know where, Jerusalem. We know who's going to come into it, all people. We know it's going to come from the loins of David, and it's going to be a throne that's ruled with judgment and justice, and it's going to last forever. Daniel would describe when, in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 28, when he would describe it as the latter days. And it was to be the beginning of the empire of Jesus. Joel would say in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 33, he would describe it afterwards, he would say, and in those days, he would use the terminology of. And Jesus would even give us an idea of when it was going to happen. If you go to Mark chapter 9, Jesus would would tell us there as he is talking to his apostles, Mark chapter 9, verse 1. He would say there, Verily I say unto you that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. So he tells them when it's going to be during the lifetime of those disciples. The Bible even prophesied clearly where it says when it says where in Zion in Jerusalem the law would go forth from Jerusalem Joel chapter 2 verse 32 tells us Jerusalem Jesus says Jerusalem Luke chapter 24 and verse 49 he would tell them tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high so we know clearly Acts chapter 1 verse 4 Jesus says here, and being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, you have heard of me. So Jesus tells I want you to be in Jerusalem. I want you to be waiting there. And there's going to be a time when you're going to be filled with power. And the promise, what was this promise? No doubt 
looking back to Joel chapter 2, this promise. And so here we have this place, we have the time, and we just don't have the time tonight. Or we would go to Daniel chapter 9, and we would break open the 70 weeks. If you've never studied that, that might be one of the richest things you can ever do for your faith, to study the 70 weeks of Daniel. You put that together and you figure out that exactly God pinpointed to the year when it was all going to happen. That's enriching. He said when, he says where. You know, he even prophesied of how. He prophesied of how the kingdom would begin. In Joel chapter 2, again, you find this picture of the pouring out of the Spirit of God upon people. The miraculous age, ushering it in. Jesus, we read it a while ago as we looked at it being in Jerusalem, but he also says, until you be endued with power from on high, Luke 24. Power. It's going to come with power. Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. It's, it's going to be waiting for the promise. In If you read in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, he says, for John truly baptized with water, but you're going to be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence, being a fulfillment of Joel chapter 3, Verses 18 through 21. And when they were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you again, will, will you uh, at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? What they're thinking is this earthly kingdom. They can't get it out of their head that it's going to be earthly. And Jesus, he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which God has put under his own power, but you're going to receive power. Now, how's it going to happen? After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. He will be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost part of the earth. And so he prophesies of how this kingdom would begin. He even told who was going to begin it. Back to Matthew chapter 16, as he's talking there to, to Peter and the other apostles. See, this sermon's got some power behind it, y'all. This is it's a rumbling. He says to Peter, I'm going to give you the keys to the kingdom. And what does he say is going to happen? He says, even the gates of hell can't prevail against it. My death isn't going to stop anything. And, and here's what blows my mind. You talk to people, denominations around us. They're all going to say this about the kingdom and the church. God set up the church because Jesus failed and this was his plan B. The church was the plan B. It doesn't sound to me like this was his plan B. You stay in Jerusalem until you be endued with power on high. Repent for the kingdom of his heaven is at hand. Pray after this manner. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What is he going to say? Thy kingdom come. What's he prophesying of a kingdom that's coming, that's going to happen in their days, and it's going to happen with power? And he says... Peter, I'm giving you the keys to this kingdom, and one day you're going to stick that key in that door and you're going to kick it open wide. The Bible shows the fulfillment of that event in Acts chapter 2. It says, When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Who's the they? It's important to get the, the pronouns in Acts chapter 2 right. And I've got it underlined, circled, and highlighted in my Bible, the they's. Because if you go back in... Remember a little bit of your high school English class. There was a word called an antecedent. And it's the word to which a pronoun refers back to. So, if I say Caleb and his sweet wife served us a good dinner, 
And they were wonderful company to be around. Do you know I was talking about Caleb and his sweet wife? Why? Because Caleb and his sweet wife are the nearest antecedent to the word they. Look at verse now, 26, chapter 1. It says, And they gave forth their lots, and Lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they, who's the they? The apostles. This is not the 120. This is the apostles. Okay? They were all in one place with one accord. Now, Jesus had told his apostles to wait where? Jerusalem. So what happens? They get endued with power on high. Here they are. They're in this place called Jerusalem. Pentecost is coming. Suddenly there came from sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled all the house where they, the apostles, were sitting. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as fire, and it sat upon each of them, the apostles, and they, Y'all know what I'm going to say. The apostles were filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them, the apostles, utterance. So now the apostles are speaking in languages that they've never spoken nor studied. How do I know that? They want to tell us that speaking in tongues is similar. I, we live down in Southeast Texas. I was driving down the road one day and there was a sign and it said, Holy Spirit, tongue-speaking class. I wanted to pull in, enroll. I wanted to learn. As a matter of fact, I went to preaching school with a man who's a year behind me that had come out of the Pentecostal church. He had been an apostle in the Pentecostal church, and he was one of their main teachers for teaching, speaking in tongues, and he told us exactly how they brainwashed people into doing it. It's real easy. If you... If you know that silly thing that Kendall's got around his neck called the tie, you can teach somebody, and you're saying, how do you do that? It's real simple. They tell them. You just say these words really fast and over and over again, and you get the really good start. It says, see my tie? Tie my tie. 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 And that's how they start. That's the very beginning of speaking in tongues, and they all have to be taught this. Well, this isn't what happens here. And follow me, and I'll prove to you why. He says, they spoke as the Spirit gave them utterance with other tongues, verse 4, and they were dwelling in Jerusalem, devout men out of every nation under heaven. And now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came and gathered, and they were founded. Now listen, because every man heard them speak in his own language. Now, the miracle was not on the hearer. The miracle was on the speaker, the apostles. Keep with me. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying, Behold, are these not, not all that speak? Galileans. So they recognize these are men of Galilee. They most likely spoke Greek, maybe Aramaic. Maybe some of them, no doubt, absolutely spoke Hebrew. And he said, and now hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born. This is not a made-up language. It's the tongue from which they were born that they heard them in. So where were these men from? The Bible's awesome, and it? it just gives us all the answers. Verse 9. Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, dwellers of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, in Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes. Every one of them hearing the apostles, they're now preaching and speaking in tongues that they studied. And these people are from all different parts of the earth. And they're hearing him in a language that they grew up knowing. This wasn't some unknown weird tongue. 
people misinterpret that from 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 13 and 14, this unknown tongue. Don't really have time to dive into that. If we're going to cover all that we're going to cover here, but listen, here's this powerful thing. If I got up here and you were a Russian and uh, I started preaching in Russian, but I'd never studied that. Didn't grow up with it. That would be a certified miracle. That's what's happening on this day. There, there is something powerful happening. There's a sound of the mighty rushing. There's a tongue of fire upon each of their heads, and they're preaching and teaching and speaking in tongues they've never spoke. They're in Jerusalem. It's the last days. Now, the greatest thing that's ever happened to the world is finishing its work. Jesus says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He tells his disciples, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'm going to give you, Peter, the keys to the kingdom. His whole purpose, he says, was that he could come to seek and to save that which was lost, Luke 19. He came so that people could be saved. The greatest question that anybody can ever ask is, how do I get saved? And and how do I become a member of his kingdom? The Bible shows the kingdom to be the same as the church, clearly. We know Matthew 16, 18, and 19. But Paul would even reiterate this idea as well. You think about Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 22 and 23, Christ being the head of the church, which he would say, which is his body. You go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4, where he would say that there is only one body. He's put all things under his feet, he says, gave him to be head over all things to the church. And then it calls the body the church. Now listen to this phrase here in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. The church is the fullness of God. When you think about what his kingdom is, it is that thing that he prophesied all the way back. Matter of fact, you can go all the way to Genesis chapter 49, and you can see how that the government was going to be from the tribe of Judah. David is going to be from his loins, the one that's going to have a kingdom, and he's going to sit on his throne. We we could see this and trace this all the way up. It was not an afterthought. It was not an accident that was set up. And when you open your newspaper on a Sunday morning and you read there on the front page of the inside cover of it, and it's got a listing of churches, and it says, go to attend the church of your choice. That's the greatest lie and the greatest idiotic statement that you can make. It's not the church of your choice. There's not multiple churches. Brethren, there's one church. And Christ purchased it with his own blood, Acts chapter 20, verse 20. It is the church which Christ is the head of, which fills the fullness of him that fills all in all. I want you to think about the fact of who Jesus actually is even. When you look at Colossians chapter 2, in verse 9, it says, For in him, talking about Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of, of the Godhead bodily. Everything God ever wanted to do was done through Jesus. When you think about the creation, it was done through Jesus. Colossians 1 verse 16. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was 
with God and the word was God. All things were created by him. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Then he came to earth, John chapter 1 and verse 14. Full of grace, full of truth. Took on the form of a human, Philippians chapter 2. Took on the form of a servant. Why? So that he could lead us home. His whole goal was to bring the church. He was preparing for it. He had prophesied of it. You may say, well, how do you know he prophesied of it? He was the word, was he not? And that prophecy came to Samuel. That was the word that was prophesied. He prophesied of it. He prepared for it. And ultimately, he provided the ultimate sacrifice to make it happen. He gave his life on Calvary so that we could be saved. That's absolutely true. That's all people want to recognize. But that's not all there is to recognize. He came to to set up his kingdom and to purchase his church. Listen, if Jesus had never died on the cross of Calvary, we wouldn't have the church today. And so the Bible shows clearly that he is the head of the church, that there is one body, and it is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And the Bible also teaches, shows that the kingdom, the church, was in existence after Pentecost, immediately after Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 2, Go down here to verse 41. It says, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles, and all that believed had, were, were together and had all things common. They sold their possessions and goods, parted them to every man as every man had need, and they continuing daily with one accord in the temple Breaking bread from house to house did eat their gladness, or did eat their gladness, did eat with gladness their meat and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church. Who did he add? Well, those 3,000. Anybody else that was baptized after that was added to what? The church. And it doesn't describe it in the future tense, and it doesn't describe it in the past tense. It describes it in the present. He says they were added to the church as if it was existing at the time, Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, after the death of Ananias and Sapphira for their lying. What does he say here? He says, and great fear came upon all the church. You think about Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. It says, and Saul was consenting to his death, talking about Stephen's death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. Go to Acts chapter 8 and verse 12. But when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom, the church of God, in the name of Jesus, they were baptized both men and women. You go to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. I know I'm going fast, but brethren, there's a lot to cover when it comes to the church. It says, now there was, now there are there were in the church that was at Antioch. There were in the church. Is that something that's future tense? You got all these football players out on a football field. What do they pray for? They'll get out there and they'll recite the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Listen, we ain't praying for the kingdom to come. It's already done, did come. It's here. It's here. We're in it. The 
Bible teaches that clearly. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 28 and verse 31. Go to the very last chapter here of the book of Acts. Notice what Paul is doing in his very last thing. Acts chapter 28 and verse 31. And I know that was some terrible grammar, but grammar is important. English is important, but preaching is importanter. And so we're going to just keep preaching. Okay? He says, preaching the kingdom. What's he doing? Paul 12, verse 30. Two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom. What kingdom? It's the church that was in existence at that time. And he did it with all confidence and no man forbade him. You go to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9. John there would say, I, John, am also your brother, am in your companion in tribulation, and am in the kingdom. Sixty years later, what's he telling them? I'm in the kingdom. Paul, right, to, to Timothy in two letters. Would he not be teaching him about how we ought to conduct ourselves in the house of God? Talking about the church, children of the ground, fruit. The Bible shows clearly that the, the kingdom of the church is existent after Pentecost today. The Bible shows clearly that the kingdom is going to be delivered up to God someday in heaven. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24 that Christ is going to deliver up that kingdom to God. So it's within this kingdom that was prophesied of, it was prepared for, it was preached about, and it was provided a sacrifice for that we find fellowship with God. It's that kingdom that we find the life that comes from being His child. And listen, He set up this kingdom for one simple reason, because He wants us to be saved. He wants to provide salvation. That was his whole purpose. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming in John chapter 1 and verse 29, he looks down the road and sees him coming. He says, Behold, he gets his disciples. He says, Look, behold, the Lamb of God, which cometh to take away the sin of the world. What was his purpose? He came to seek man's souls. He, he left the glory of heaven, and he took upon himself the form of a servant. Why? So he could save us. How was he going to do that? Through the church. It was going to be through his church. People wanted to dismiss the value of the church. But you can't separate salvation and the church. You think about Romans chapter 5, great passage on salvation, how God loves us so much. It says in verse 8, But God committed His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Why did He die for us? See, that's a grand question. So He could purchase the church. You know who the church is? Those that are obedient to the to the plan of salvation. The ones that are willing to do what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 18 would say, And all things are of God who is reconciled by himself, by or to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. He says he reconciled us to him. How? Through Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, It pleased the Father that in him should all the fullness dwell, and having made peace through his blood by the cross, by him to reconcile, to take those of us who were lost, as Paul would write to the Ephesians, brethren, who were aliens, who were outside without hope. And he's going to now bring them in through Jesus to the church. He's going to reconcile all things, he says. Where's that going to happen in the church? Why did he do this? Why did he do this for us? We know no doubt he did it because he loved us. 
You know what? He, he even did it for more. I want you to go with me to 1 John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I wonder if you ever caught this here. I hope you have. 1 John chapter 1. John is going to say this. He says, That which was from the beginning which we heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon with our hands, have handled the word of life. Talking about the apostles. He says, For the life was manifested, we've seen it, and we bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that you may also have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship with the, is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write unto you, that your joy may be full. John says, as an apostle, we got to see it, we got to hear it, we got to feel it, and we get to tell you about it so you can be a partaker with us, so you can have fellowship with the Father, and that your joy may be full. I'm tired. I'm sick and tired. You said it. Half the members in the Lord's church act like they was nourished up on pickles, weaned on vinegar, and it's the truth. They act like the Lord's church is the most disgusting thing to have to tell anybody or defend about. I don't know about you. I'm proud to be a part of that thing that was prophesied, that was prepared, it was prayed for, it was provided for. I'm proud to be a part of the blood-bought body of Christ. I'm proud to be a part of the thing that is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. I am proud of that. I am thankful that I have a God that loved me enough to do it. And you know what? I can have the greatest joy in the Lord's church. We ought not act so bitter. We ought not act so beat up by the denomination. Now, I'm sure, yeah, we get tired of hearing things like, well, you people say, you know, you're the only ones going to heaven. Good sister, one time we heard her say, and she said, oh, no, it's way worse than that. She said, I don't even believe half my brethren are going to heaven. You know, we feel bad when people say that. That's it. That's it. A tactic of the liberal. Why do you think the liberals up in Washington, anytime they want to get their way, they start throwing out words like bigot, homophobes, this phobe and that phobe and transphobe and phobe this and phobia that? Why? Because it's a tactic. Listen, brethren, we can teach and preach all day that there's one church. You know why? Because that's what the Bible teaches. We don't have to be mean about it. We don't have to be awful about it. But we can be truthful about it. I got one wife, and it don't mean I'm mean when I tell people I got one wife. It means it's the truth. She's my ex-girlfriend, but I got my one wife, and I love her, and I'm proud of her, and that's okay. Listen, we ought to be the proudest people on earth. I'm a member of the Church of Christ. Y'all, it ain't bad to say. It, it is not wrong for you to say, I am proud to be a member of the Church of Christ. When somebody says, why are you so proud to be a member of the Church of Christ? Let me sit down and show you. Because Jesus bought it with his blood. God prophesied of it. He did all this work to make it happen. And here we are in it. And you can be in it too. Wouldn't that be awesome? What if people started hearing us talk about the church in that way instead of, you know, we got problems down there at the church. You know, oh, so-and-so, he always leads long prayers at the church. 
our song leader, he can't carry a tune, you know, fuck it. No Kindle. Don't start me on Kindle. Right? I mean, that's how people treat it. We say things like this. Gotta go to church today. Well, don't go if that's how you feel. I don't need your toxic awfulness in there ruining my praises to the God of heaven. But if you come in with this attitude, I get to go to worship today. Hey, look, you want to go with me? I'm going to worship. It's the greatest thing I'm going to do all week. You know what that does to a church? Man, that builds it up. We ought to know how to behave ourselves, brethren. I believe that's what Paul's talking about. We're in the, the place that is the temple in the ground of the pillar of ground of truth. How beautiful is that? We are compared to the Jewish nation of old by Peter when he would say, you are a peculiar people, a holy nation. And we are called, we're called, brethren, to do something greater than murmur. What did the children of Israel fall in the wilderness for? Murmuring. How dare I speak an ill word of the Lord's church? How dare I? When I could speak about things that are done for me so that my joy could be full. So it could be full. I have fellowship with God and I have fellowship with man. He says, I write these things that your joy may be full. And this then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But listen to this statement. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And now catch this, and the blood of Jesus, what's it going to do? Cleanses us from all sin. When I'm in his church, and I'm in fellowship with God, I'm in fellowship with man, I have joy that is full, I have salvation, I have this blood that keeps on cleansing me as long as I am living the way God says. Now I'm going to dive off into it. This is a hot topic in our brotherhood right now, stupidly, but it is. There are some in our brotherhood, the pendulum. I don't know if you know what a pendulum and how it works. It starts over here. You let go of it here, what's it do? Stop in the middle? No. Whew. Goes over here, and it comes back over here, and it goes over here. And that's what our brotherhood is doing on this subject right now. Let's find the middle. Let's look at the text to get the middle. He says, if we walk. In the light. There's a couple things there that he makes clear. First, there, it is conditional. It is conditional. The condition is walking in the light. What does it mean to walk in the light? That's a grand question. You know, the Bible never describes someone living righteously, soberly, and godly as walking in darkness. When somebody's out there drinking, does it ever describe them as walking in light? No. When somebody's out there doing what they're supposed to, are they described as walking in light? Yes. If we do what God says, are we going to make mistakes occasionally? Let's answer it. Yes, we are. That's what he's dealing with here. We're going to make mistakes. You know why? Because we're dumb sometimes. I'm dumb sometimes. Sometimes I let my earthly passions, what would Paul say? Sometimes I do the things that I ought not. And sometimes I don't do the things I ought to do. 
Because why? Because we're human. And we're going to make mistakes sometimes. We don't use it as an excuse, but it's a reality. And when we make those mistakes, what is our responsibility? Now, we're going to look at the text and get the answer. He says, if we, if we walk in the light, as he is in light, we have fellowship one with another. Blood of Jesus Christ, it cleanses us from sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. And if we confess, what, what, is, what is it to confess? I want you to hold your hand here. Get over it if it's too long. I'm sorry, but in the Book of Psalms we have great insight into this idea. In Psalm chapter 32, we referenced this the other day as we looked at forgiveness, but we didn't go very far. It's talking about forgiveness here. You get down to verse three now. He says, "When I kept silence." My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day. What's he doing? He's trying to hide this sin. He's trying to keep it to himself. And what is he doing? He's agonizing over it. For that, moisture was turned to the drought of summer. He couldn't cry anymore. He's out of tears. I acknowledged my sin and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. What's happened? He has done what? Repented. He has repented. I confess it. I acknowledge it. And I'm going to announce it. God, I've done you wrong. I'm doing something about it. I'm addressing my sins. Verse 10 here, he says, Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice ye righteous. Shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Who is the upright in heart? The one that will repent of sin. Listen, we make mistakes. What do we do immediately? Here's the, here's the way you stay in the light. You're going to make a mistake. What do you do immediately? You fix it. Hey, I did wrong. That was wrong of me. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that, Lord. Please forgive me. You do it in front of somebody else. You take them aside and you say, hey, look, I did something I shouldn't have done in front of you, and I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? Somebody's going to ask the question, so let's deal with it. Let's just deal with it. You make the mistake, and uh, let's just do the dumb hypothetical thing that everybody wants to live in. You're driving to their house, and you're on your way, and you wreck, and you haven't gotten to fix it with them. Are you lost, or are you, are you saved? Are you walking in the light or not? Well, let me ask you, what are you on your way to do? You're trying to address it the best you can. You're doing everything in your power to get there. Maybe you're speeding to get there because you want to address it so bad. And you get in a wreck. What are you, try what are you trying to do? You're so concerned with your soul and you're so concerned about them that you're willing to go address your sin, which is the very thing that God has asked you to do. When you are doing what God has asked you to do, are you walking in the light or not? You are. You are. You know what? I'm going to leave that into the hands of a God that is merciful pitiful, loving, and graceful. Is that not true? If we'll do what He says, the way He says to do it, can we not leave our souls in the hand of a God like that? I trust that He will keep His promises. If I walk in the light, He is in the light. He's faithful and just to forgive my sins. I am trying to fix things and work things out. What am I doing? That is, that is not the effort of a sinner. People all the time 
You know, I'm a sinner saved by grace. No, you're not. Stop saying that. Christian, stop saying that. You're a saint. Saints are the kind of people that want to go out and fix things. Saints are the ones that want to address sin. Saints are the ones that want to announce it when they do wrong to make sure it's fixed. Why? Because they love the Lord and they love their soul. They love other people. That's walking in the light, brethren. We're trying to fix it. We're living in a state that's constantly... And listen, there are people, you show them their sin and what are they going to do? How dare you tell me I did wrong? Is that walking in the light? Let me ask you, is that walking in the light? You go to somebody and you say, hey, you know, you said something the other day when we were talking. And it wasn't right. And that person melts. And that person says, I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me? I did not mean to do that. Is there somebody else I need to make? Can we not understand that there are completely two different kinds of people we're dealing with? There's the one person, oh, I didn't do it. Go to First John chapter 1. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's this guy. <clears throat> oh, I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not fixing nothing. Or if you have the guy that says, oh, you know what? I confess I did that. There's two different people described here in the text. God calls us to be the second. The one that's willing to confess our sins. He says that's walking in the light. When you're willing, what's the only sin that you can commit that God will not forgive? Don't say suicide, but we're not going into that tonight. That's one that somebody does not repent of. I know that can fall in that group. There's a lot that goes into that. We're not dealing with that. It's one we won't repent of. It's the only sin that God cannot forgive. Because it it violates His holiness and His goodness and His perfectness. But anything else, God is ready and willing to forgive. How? If we'll just confess our sins. As Christians, if we walk in the light as He is in the light, where does that belong? Who is that for? Those that are in the kingdom. We're citizens of His kingdom. And so you know what He's doing for us? He's protecting us. He's providing for us. And He wants us in heaven. Listen, God is not the kind of God that's out there just looking to, the age is about to do it. Oh, here He comes. The age is about to do it. He's going to sin. That's how some people view God. But my Bible tells us that the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slack, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. What is His goal? What is His objective for you and for me? Sitting there waiting like a mousetrap to get us? No. He wants... Matter of fact, I think the very reason, this is my Gage's opinion for just a second, the very reason God ain't come yet, well, I know it's the truth because the Bible says it, is that he wants everybody to have an opportunity. He wants everybody to have an opportunity. And that includes you and me. He's not trying to swat us, beat us down. No, it doesn't excuse us when we sin. Don't go wrong. The pendulum goes over here just as easily as it goes over here. We've got to walk in that light. We've got to do right. We're going to make mistakes. And what do we do as soon as we make it? We fix it. That's the difference. The grand opening of the kingdom. Peter stuck that key in the door. 
and he kicked it open wide. Those men there were pricked in their hearts and they asked the question, what must we do? What was the very first thing Peter told them? Don't say baptized because you're wrong. He said repent. Kendall and I was talking about this today. I think the greatest, one of the greatest struggles the church has today is we've preached baptism so long we don't know what repentance is. Baptism ain't hard to get people to do if you can get them to repent. If we can just get them to repent, and listen, if you're here today and you've got sin in your life, all God is asking you to do is repent. Baptism will take care of itself. You'll get right in that water. That's not even going to be a question. He said, baptized, how can I get in here faster? Right? Could you move this thing? Was that not the response to the Ethiopian eunuch as they're going along the road? Look, hey, here's water. What's keeping me from it? Don't miss the, the immediacy of the eunuch. Hey, let's stop this thing. And they went down in the water. After he had made that great confession, what does he do? He baptized him. How does he leave? He goes on his way rejoicing. What did he get him to do? He says he preached to him Jesus. And when he preached to him Jesus, there is no doubt that it preached repentance. When it came to water, there was no, hey, you know what, I see that water, but I'm not real sure it's going to do anything. How do you know? What if I just accept Jesus into my heart? Is that what he does? No. What does he say? There's water. Put me in it. Baptism should be a natural. Why was there 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost that were baptized? Because they'd been taught about repentance. They'd been pricked in their hearts. Something wanted to change because they'd been told, this same Jesus, you put him on a cross, you killed him. What do they want to do? we got to fix it. I want to fix it. I don't believe people understand how deep their sin goes. I don't feel like people in this world know how bad hell is. Because if they did, they'd want to get in that water. You know, the devil doesn't want you to get in the water. He knows that there's power there. As the old gospel preacher John Shannon once said, he said, you know why the devil don't want you to be baptized? Because you burn better dry. God is calling you to do something greater than just live the way you want. Do what he says. If you'll repent, it'll take care of itself. So the grand question, what will I do? First John chapter 5, John's going to end his book with this statement. He says, this is the record. God hath given to us eternal life. That life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath the life. He that hath not the Son hath not the life. But these things have I written to you that believe on this name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Hmm. He wrote to us so that we could know that we have eternal life. Absolutely. We can know it. So, you got a question in front of you right now. You're going to walk out of these doors here in a minute. You're going to live in one of two states for the rest of your life. Either lost or saved. There's no in-betweener. I don't care what the world says. There ain't no gray area. You're either lost or you're saved. You either have either have the life have the life. You're either in the church or you're out of the church. You're either walking in the light or you're not. How are you going to leave? And how are you going to leave? Tonight, you're going to leave when you know you're not right with God. 
you know you're not walking in the light. You may be sitting here, you've never obeyed the gospel, you've never put on Christ in baptism, having repented of your sin. You're thinking to yourself right now, I really don't want to die and go to heaven. You're thinking to, my, to yourself, I might be thinking to myself, I really want to die and go to heaven. I want my joy to be full. I want to live a full life that is godly and good. Then do something about it. We can baptize you if that's what you need. We can pray for you, pray with you, strengthen you. We can God on behalf of you. That's a question it is. Sermons like this aren't necessarily always easy. Sometimes people get upset. Sometimes it steps on toes. If I hit your toes, I'm sorry I missed. Pain in your heart. God is calling walking in the light. This is our faith. Won't you please, as we stand, as we sing.